What was it like to audition for Broadway's greatest team, Rodgers and Hammerstein, at the age of nine? My mother gets a call that I'm to go to the office of Richard Rodgers. And Rodgers and Hammerstein at the time were absolutely the kings of the realm. And he had a huge, huge office. Oh, my God. It was enormous. Coming up, the story of a little girl who modeled, acted on stage, worked on network radio, and performed on Broadway with Marlon Brando before retiring at the age of 12. Here on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Some people can tell a story so well, with so much detail and delight, that if you shut your eyes, you can actually picture what they're talking about. That's the way I'd describe today's guest, Alex Lemereau. I met Alex in church 10 years ago, and we hit it off right away. I'm certain if we'd have gone to school together, we'd have been separated by the end of day one for talking too much or engaging in some kind of shenanigans. Alex is one of those eternally young people, the kind with a smile on her face and a twinkle in their eye. She's got a great sense of fun, and we often engage in mock insults, treating everyone else nice, but pretending to hate each other, greeting each other with mock scowls, and then quickly breaking into laughter. You'd think we would have grown up by now. Actually, Alex had to grow up fast during the Great Depression. The daughter of Scottish parents who met in Canada and settled in Chicago, she was born with a gift, the ability to entertain, a gift that helped her family make do during a very difficult time. Hers is a unique brush with fame story. Modeling, network radio, an audition with Rodgers and Hammerstein, and a stint on Broadway acting night after night with Marlon Brando, then retirement at the age of 12. Retirement at 12? I told you it was unique. Alex, you kind of started this by saying I. it started when you were four years old, so I'm really more than willing <laughs> to hear this whole story, how it happened. Uh, it was during the Depression. My folks were extremely poor, as was everybody. And my dad was very lucky to get a job in a 16-story building in Chicago with lovely apartments for the wealthy. And we got an apartment with it. Really? And that otherwise we probably would have been in a homeless shelter because everybody we knew had no jobs, no money, nothing. So one day, I was four years old, there was a knock at the door of our apartment, and this gentleman that lived in one of the beautiful apartments upstairs, he said, can I ask you a question to my mother? She said, of course. And he said, I'm a photographer, and I just, I've just been told that I have to get a picture of a child and he said, I've seen your little girl running around. She's just the right age. So would you be willing if I pay her to have her come up to my place and you come up with her and I'll take a picture of her? And my mother looked at me and I was smiling. <laughs> and she said, okay. You know, it meant a little money too. Yeah, <laughs> right. in oh, those yeah. days. 
So he took the picture, and it, it ended up in, I think it was up the newspaper or someplace where a lot of people saw it. So anyhow, it wasn't very long then before my mother started getting phone calls from agents, from people that were looking for small children to do this or that. And I was always willing to do any of it. You know, I thought it was fun. And like I say, they were always looking for a little money. Because even though they got the apartment, you were lucky if you got a potato for dinner, you know. So I ended up getting so many catalogs and magazines and newspapers with my picture here, my picture there, that my mother started getting calls from an agent. And the agent said, we've seen her all over the place and we'd like to, you know, have her work with us. So my mom and dad agreed to do that. And then I started singing just for fun. And before long, there was a place called the Butler House in Chicago. Um, They called and said they had heard that I had a decent voice. And would I come and be Gretel in Hansel and Gretel? Wow. My mother was very surprised. So was my dad. And I did it. From that, I ended up in the children's chorus in Carmen at the Civic Opera House. It was like... There weren't kids doing all that stuff in those days, and my name got around the city. So I sang in the children's chorus of Carmen. As Alex tells it, one thing led to another. Radio was next. Her hometown of Chicago was a major center of network radio shows. Amos and Andy, Fibber McGee and Molly, Jack Armstrong, and the Quiz Kids all originated in the Windy City. So did the world's first soap opera. Again, the agent called and said that they were looking for a child to go on the radio for Painted Dreams and Guiding Light soap operas. And I was still going to a normal school, but the teacher was very understanding. And if I had to miss a morning to go and have my picture taken someplace, she would give my mom something or other that I could do at home. So one thing led to another, and I ended up being on these two soap operas on the radio every day. One was in the Uh, Tribune Tower and right across the street the other one was in the Wrigley Building. So that was taking up lots of time. So the studio was in the Tribune Tower? Yeah. I've recorded in that. Have you? Oh, it's fun. A few years ago there was a recording studio up there. Yeah, Yeah. and you could look out over the city. Yeah. So I was on that every day and I stood on a little little stool that they put right up against the microphone because I was so small. What was the drill? How did, when did you go in and when did you see your script first? Oh, you saw it the day of, five or ten minutes after you got there. You were handed a script and then you go up there. I was just lucky I could read that well. Yeah. You know, because I, I had to have been seven years old. Was it like an hour before the show went on that you'd rehearse? I think it might not have been quite an hour, but I'm pretty sure it was at least 45 minutes. You know, we'd rehearse at least once and then we'd do the show. And you did the show live, right? Oh, yeah. It was all live. And then I'd go across the street to the Wrigley Building, and I think it was kind of the same there, where you had time to read the script, go over whatever, you know, if you were going to change something, and then just go on the air. But it was every day, five days a week for a long time. That sounds like fun, though. I mean, oh, yeah, I had a ball. <laughs> so was that, that was in the middle of the afternoon or morning? or I'm sure. guessing it was the morning. But I'm not, I honestly don't remember. They had local shows and then shows that went out over the network that went all over the country, too, yeah. from Chicago. Guiding Light was, okay. not Painted Dreams. I think Painted Dreams was local. So you played the young child in the Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's kind of typecast, right? Yeah, you were. no kidding, with a little voice. Yes. <laughs> that must have been great fun. Though. Oh, yeah. 
While it was great fun, money was still tight, even with Alex's talent fees. I'll never forget it. My mom and I, uh, we were in some department store, and I saw this tiny little dollhouse, just a little house, and I fell madly in love with it. And my mother must have gone home and said to my dad, let's get that for her for Christmas. It was about six months before Christmas. They had to save up for six months. Honest to God, I think it cost about $2 or... I mean, money was just yeah. unbelievable at that time. It was a terrible Nobody time. Nobody had any. That's how things were. Everybody was broke. Then my mother gets a call. Could your daughter take over for a role in a play that's coming to the Civic Theater? They just lost the little girl they had hired, I think in New York or wherever, and they're frantically looking for someone to replace her. So my mother always asked me if I would be interested in stuff. That's how she was. If I had said no, she would have said no. Well, God bless her for yeah. that. Yeah, oh, she was a saint. <laughs> she was. She was the most wonderful mother. But <laughs> anyhow, I got the role, and we played in Chicago for quite a while, and then we went on the road all over the country. Uh, that show was Janie, J-A-N-I-E. The play Janie was described as a wartime romp where a high-spirited teenage girl and her friends, unbeknownst to their parents, throw a party for soldier boys from a nearby army camp. Things get out of hand and the house is in chaos. Alex was an adolescent actress, but a winning member of the young cast. It was a wonderful, wonderful show. A great story. All young people, a lot of them in uniform, military uniform, young women, young men. And it was a, f a fabulous comedy. And the role that I got was one of the leading roles. Even the child uh -huh. had a leading role. I was having a ball. I loved it. It was during the Second World War, and we would take troop trains to get from one place to another. We'd sit in the aisle on our suitcases. Oh, really? Wow. Because the soldiers or sailors or whoever was on the troop train wanted to give us their seats, and we wouldn't take them because the war was going full blast. So we ended up going all over the country and then up into Canada. And your mother was with you this oh, whole time? Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. She became the mother of the cast. Okay. They all fell in love with her. They'd ask her advice on things, you know, and we became a family. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Everybody loved everybody else, which doesn't always happen in the theater. <laughs> And what was your name? What was your stage name? Mary Killen, K-I-L-L-E-N. That's my real name. Early in the run of Janie, something happened that Alex never forgot. There was a maid and a butler in the show, both black actors, just marvelous people and great actors. And the director came up to my mother, and he had a very long face, and my mother thought something was really wrong. And he said, I have a question to ask you. Do you have a problem with the fact that Mary has to share a room with the black maid when she gets made up and everything? And my mother wouldn't have thought of anything like that. She said, why would I have a problem? But in those days, there would have been a lot of mothers who would have said, you have to be kidding. She's not going to sit in a dressing room with a black person. So anyhow, the black person, Rosetta Lenoir, was a lot like my mother. She was an angel. I just fell in love with her. She fell in love with me. We were leaving the theater after a matinee, and Rosie said, now, Mary, she said, if there are people out there that want 
an autograph, even if you're in a hurry, you stop and you do the autograph. Don't ever turn anybody down that wants an autograph. And she was like my second mother. I said, oh, okay. She had a big role in the show, and she was a terrific actress. And at the end of the show, the people would clap, you know, when we were all taking our bows. Yes. They, they just thought she was wonderful. But when she'd walk out with me, after we took our makeup off and all this kind of stuff, they would ask me for an autograph, and they'd ignore her because she was black. She knew that was going to happen. She didn't tell me it was going to happen. It went on all the time. It was disgusting. I couldn't believe it. Today, Rosetta Lenoir is famous. She was just 33 when Alex met her. She'd already appeared in Orson Welles' all-black cast of Macbeth. She went on to become a groundbreaking African-American Broadway, stage, screen, and television actress, and a top Broadway producer. Since 1988, Actors' Equity has presented the Rosetta Lenoir Diversity Award to a who's who of black entertainers, including Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee, Jeffrey Holder, Leslie Uggams, Maurice Hines, Felicia Rashad, Dion Warwick, and the author and star of the rap musical Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. That's how significant Rosetta Lenoir is today. But Alex knew her in a very different time. For many, many years after I lost track of her, I thought of her, Rosie, because she was just, she would buy little gifts for me. I mean, we were like sisters, and I adored her. I read in our newspaper here, her picture was there, and I thought, oh my God, that looks like Rosetta. And it was. Rosetta Lenoir, one of the top producers on Broadway. She died. It was an obituary. And I looked, one of the top producers on Broadway? And how people snubbed her in the past? I thought, good for you, Rosie. (laughs) One of Alex's favorite memories of Janie was how, as a child actress, she had to improvise on stage for several minutes when an actor didn't appear as planned. In one scene, I was on the stage, probably two or three, four minutes max, before the door would open into this big living room and the butler would walk in. And there was a grand piano at the front of the stage that was never used, it was just a prop. So I gave him his cue, the door didn't open. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what's happening? He got locked in his dressing room on the second floor. (laughs) He was banging on the door. So someone would hear him and get him out to get down on the stage. And I was scared, because I thought, Where is he? What happened? Because that had never happened before. Then I saw the piano. I went over and sat down and started playing the piano just in case it was going to be 15 or 20 minutes or something before he showed up. I don't even know if I got to the end of one number and all of a sudden the door almost came off the hinges. (laughs) It went flying open. I think it hit the wall. And at the end of the play that night, the director came up to my mother and said, I can't believe she was so clever to, you know, take some time on the stage. And we, none of us knew she could play the piano because no one had ever touched that piano before. It was just a prop. The highlight of the Janie tour occurred in Toronto when a local theater critic gave Little Alex a rave review. He gave Janie a fantastic write-up. He said, don't let this show leave the city until you see it, because it was a great show. It was one laugh after another. 
And then at the end of this critique in the paper, he said, and my very favorite person in the show was the little girl, Mary Killen. <laughs> and so, of course, all these guys and these young women are saying, did you pay him off to say that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was the big hit of the day that Mary was the favorite. So anyhow, we ended up on the East Coast, and I think it was Hartford, and then the show ended. So I was having such a ball, I wanted to stay doing that kind of work. So we decided, my mom and I got this very small apartment in New York, and I started trying out for different roles. Coming up, childhood memories of auditioning for Rodgers and Hammerstein, when The Off-Ramp continues. Welcome back to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. We continue with the story of Alex Lemereau. In New York, Alex says the steady work stopped and she found herself struggling for parts. Keep in mind, she was still less than 10 years old. Well, you know, in New York, it's a lot different than it had been in Chicago. I'll bet. I would go for a role and there'd be 30 kids there all for the same role, you know. So sometimes I got turned down and I was dejected about that. And then finally, my mother gets a call that I'm to go to the office of Richard Rogers. And Rogers and Hammerstein at the time were absolutely the kings of the realm. I mean, they couldn't do anything wrong. Right, yes, they had hit after hit after hit. It was unbelievable. So my mom and I get there, and when we were told we we could go into his office, the door to his office was partially open and partially closed. My mom was small like I am, so we just didn't push the door open or anything. We just walked around the door. And he had a huge, huge office. Oh, my God. It was enormous. And he's sitting at his office, and he looks at me. My mom and I sat down at his desk. He was very nice. And he said, Oscar and I are not writing this show. It's not a musical or anything like that. We're just producing it. But we want to be the ones to hire the cast. And he said, I'm going to cue you, and you're going to do the role of Dagmar. I said, okay. So he started. It went on for 15, 20 minutes maybe. And then he puts the script down and looks at me with kind of a long face. And I thought, oh, he didn't like the way I read the lines. And my mom thought that too. Cause That's he over. Just, he doesn't like us. Yeah, exactly. So I looked at him and I thought, oh, I didn't do so good. And he said, I'd hire you in a minute. He said, you did extremely well. You could do that role. But you're supposed to be Scandinavian, and you look so Irish. (laughs) At which point, I put my hand on my hip, and I looked at him, and I said, I'm not Irish, I'm Scottish, just like that. And then this deep male voice from behind us in the room, he was behind that door that was partially open. We didn't know he was there the whole time that I was reading. It was Hammerstein. And I'm going to swear now because I'm going to tell you what he said. He said, oh, for Christ's sake, Dick, hire her. She's got spunk. (laughs) And I got the role. But he looked at my mother and he said, I'm not asking you for us to dye her hair blonde to make her look Scandinavian. He said, but would you mind if we rinsed her hair so that under the lights it would look kind of dark blonde, but it really won't look blonde if she's out on the streets, you know. And my mom looked at me. She always wanted me to say, yes, that's okay. (laughs) 
and I wanted the role. You know, I knew Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rogers were big stuff. And um, she said, yes, that's okay with me. And I said, yes. And then we sat there for at least another 15, it was probably, well, it was well over half an hour. Wow. But when I left, I knew I'd gotten the role. You know, and I was happy because they had such a big name at that time. The play was I Remember Mama, the story of a Norwegian immigrant family in San Francisco in the early 20th century. It premiered on Broadway on October 19, 1944 at the Music Box Theater and ran for 713 performances. Alex says getting the role of Dagmar wasn't the end of her thrills. It was just the beginning. She had the experience of working with a rising star in his first Broadway play, the only other youngster in the show, a teenager named Marlon Brando. When I found out who some of the players were in the play, I was very impressed. Um, but the biggest thing that sort of changed my life for that play was that I was Marlon Brando's sister. It was his first play. I think he had been at the actor's studio, if I'm not mistaken. With Stella Adler and... Oh, yeah, yes. okay. Yeah. yeah, and this is his first professional role ever. Yes. He was like 17 or 18? 18. 18. 18. And I was nine, I think, by this time. And we were the two youngest in the play, and he took a liking to me, and I took a liking to him. And neither one of us could stand the man that was the lead actor. He was a wonderful actor, but a real male diva. He looked down his nose at everybody. He was Oscar Homolka. I don't know whether you ever heard of him. He was a top actor on Broadway. And Mady Christians was Mama. And um, <laughs> it was so funny because Marlon Brando and I just clicked. And a, at least 20 times that I can remember, he would come over to me and say very quietly, what do you think of this idea? I want to do this to him. And he would do something sneaky to Oscar Homolka. Oh, really? Yeah, something sneaky. <laughs> and he'd say, what do you think? Is that okay? And I, I said, yes, every time. Because <laughs> I liked him, but I didn't like Oscar Homolka. Well, even he, as kids, you knew you didn't like this guy. I know. All you had to do was be around him for an hour. And oh, you really? know how disgusting he was. And most people don't think of Marlon Brando being that young, being in a show like that. What well, was, was his first? Yeah. It was his first show. Yeah. And Almost every trick he played on Oscar Homolka, he got away with. <laughs> he was so sneaky. He would do it, and then he'd come afterwards and tell me, it worked, it worked. <laughs> but the other cute thing I have to tell you is that I made an impression on both Hammerstein and Rogers with the fact that I was so proud to be Scottish. <laughs> on opening night on Broadway, we, we went to Hartford, we went to several places, and then we opened on Broadway. And on opening night, all the women in the show got these giant, absolutely beautiful floral things, you know, for opening night. What I got, <laughs> flowers in a little crystal Scotty dog. Oh, <laughs> how sweet. A, a Scotty dog. So thoughtful. My mother and I both burst out laughing when we saw it. Because that's how we felt. How thoughtful could yeah. you be? And I still have it. It's in my bedroom. But anyhow, I was on Broadway then in that role for, I think, almost a year. Every night then. And yeah. twice on Saturdays or something oh, like yeah, that, right? Yeah, all the matinees. And I reached the point finally where, it, I don't know, it was just different being in that show. 
was so different than the play Janie, where we all loved each other and it was so family-oriented, with these people that were sort of snobbish, some of them, not all of them. But it was just different, and I miss my dad, you know, and I, I just reached a point, and my mother could see it in me, and I hated going to professional children's school. It was awful. Why was it awful? The other children? Some of the children were <laughs> disgusting. The mothers were all disgusting because they were stage mothers. Uh-huh. And they acted like such snobs that I, I just thought, I hate this. So at the age of 12, Alex essentially retired from show business. She and her mother returned to Chicago to rejoin her father. But in high school, there was one last flirt with potential fame. I was modeling because that word got out in Chicago that I had been a model years ago. And I was in some catalogs and a couple of magazines. But on the whole, when I started high school, I just decided I'm going to be as normal as I can. (laughs) And we started just turning stuff down until there was one thing that turned out to be kind of funny. You'll laugh when I tell you this. The agent found out that I was back and hadn't seen me in a few years, you know. She gave my name to somebody in L.A. for a tryout for a movie they were going to make because she said, this girl can act. She's acted on the radio. She's acted on the stage. She's been on Broadway. So they became sort of interested from Uh what I can gather until they found out that I had never been on a horse. National Velvet, and the role went to Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) I had never been on a horse. And when they heard that, they said, "Uh uh-uh. But before that, you were in the running. (laughs) Oh, how interesting. And because I'd never been on a horse, Liz got it. So I could have had seven husbands. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it just, um, it felt good to me to get back into normalcy. Yes. Yeah, you're entering your teenage years. Yeah, exactly. We all know how hard that can be. I know. After I started getting normalcy, I liked it. Most people go into show business is the opposite, right? They have a normal life and then they go into this. But I can imagine that craziness of it all and you're not in control of things, right? No, no. Because there's always somebody else deciding your fate, whether you win the audition or not, whether you're going to go here or that, especially when you're a kid. Yeah. Thank God your mother was such a kind and uh, nice person. you would have had to know her. Decades went by. Alex grew up and entered the travel business, flying cross-country and back and forth to Europe many times. Later, she went into financial services. Ironically, it was her mother who got her back into performing when she resided in a nursing home, where Alex was a regular visitor who played the piano. The last two years of my mother's life, she couldn't talk. Couldn't utter a sound. No talking. I went there every day to see her, and they had a lovely piano, and I'd play the piano. She couldn't talk, but she could sing in her beautiful soprano voice. And she'd sit there and sing. And then it dawned on me right around the very same time that this ex-Marine who had been hurt in the war, and he was quite crippled, and he'd always say to me, Play Marine him, Alex. And that's how he talked all the time. But he could sing like crazy. So I got the head nurse one day, and I said, I don't get it. If they can't talk, how can they sing? And they both have lovely voices. She said, Alex, she said, you're giving them musical therapy. It's two different parts of the brain. The part where they're singing 
is fine, and the part where they talk is very bad. And when I went back there after my mother passed away to see that head nurse, because she'd been so nice to me, she said, have you even thought about going out to other places and playing the piano for people because they can't wait for you to get here every day? Three months after she died, I tried it, and I've been doing it ever since. And that's another way Alex affects me, through her music. I can't explain it, but when Alex sits down in our church sanctuary, her piano skills send my mind off on reveries and adventures. One Thanksgiving service, her playing triggered a family history movie of sorts. I shut my eyes, and for the three minutes she played, I watched a weird, silent movie unfold, seeing generation after generation of my family emerge, from pilgrim ancestors through my grandparents. I told her about it afterwards. She says more than one person has reacted in the same way. Why? Maybe it's the way she plays piano. Well, where'd you learn piano? Because I love to hear you play From my piano. father. He yeah. played on the Black Keys, and he taught me on a little tiny toy piano. He played on the Black Keys, and I play on the Black Keys, which people think is totally, totally weird. I mean, I've had musicians that have stood looking... Why are you playing on the black keys? So you only played the black keys, yeah. is that right? I yeah. didn't know that. I don't even know what key I play in. I well, can't read music. And you know, whenever you've played, I have just shut my eyes. Images come to my like It was like movies in my mind. I've told you this, too. Yeah. Somebody else, I don't remember who it was, told me the same thing. Really? It brought back all kinds of memories, even if the song wasn't that yes. old. It just brought back memories. Yeah, and it was just magical. It, like it unlocked I something. I should charge you. You should. You <laughs> I'll think, send you a bill at the end of the month. You've got to figure out how this works, Alex, and sell it. Well, it, it would, does bring back memories. I wonder today. if it is the Black Keys. Alex never really gave up entertaining. A few years ago, she worked with my friend Matt Partridge and recorded an album of Christmas songs, donating the proceeds to the Salvation Army. Today, this former child actress continues to perform, playing for nursing home residents, mesmerizing listeners with little gems played on those black keys. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining us for this special Brush with Fame story on my friend, Alex Lamoureux. I hope you'll join us next time on The Off-Ramp. This is Bob Smith. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.